1 Timothy 1, reading from uh, verse 12. Paul writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, do keep your Bible open there as we pray together now. Let's pray. God, our Father, help us as we turn to Your Word, as we consider this great theme of Your forgiveness of Your people. We pray that You would encourage our hearts, that You would give light to our minds, that You would open our spirits and our souls to receive all that You have for us. Be gracious to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 19th of August, 1531, a Saturday, a clergyman was led to a place in Norwich called Lollard's Pit, and there he was tied to a stake and burned to death as a heretic. He was in his mid-thirties. As the flames surrounded him, he was heard to cry out two words repeatedly. The first word was, Jesus. The second was credo, the Latin word from which we get the word creed, meaning I believe. Jesus and I believe. Thomas Bilney, little Bilney as he was known, he was a short man, uh, was a Roman Catholic priest. All he had to do to stay safe was to continue to believe what the church told him to believe, but he couldn't because he had discovered it to be untrue. In fact, ever since his youth, Bilney had known that his soul was sick. He was weighed down with guilt. He longed for peace with God, and so he had gone to the priests and asked for help. Later in his life, he wrote a letter describing what happened at this period in his life. And I went to the priests, he said, they, they appointed me fastings, watchings, buying of pardons and masses, in all which things, as I now understand, they sought rather their own gain than the salvation of my sick and languishing soul. But in 1516, when Bilney was about 20 or so, a Dutch scholar called Erasmus did something revolutionary. For the first time, Erasmus published the New Testament in its original Greek so that scholars could study it. Up to that point, it was in a poor Latin translation. Um, so now the New Testament was out in Greek. Bilney got hold of a copy, and reading the New Testament for himself, out of the darkness of his confusion and frustration, a new light dawned. Uh, but at length, this is what he wrote in his letter, uh, 
It's a fascinating comment. I'd been to the priest. I'd asked them where I could find forgiveness. Then he says this, but at length, I heard of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? I went to the priests. I asked them where I could find forgiveness. And, and, and later on, I heard of someone called Jesus. I heard of Jesus when the New Testament was first published by Erasmus. And beginning to read it, I well remember that I first met with this sentence of Paul, almost sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. It is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be embraced, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief and principal. Bilney came face to face with 1 Timothy 1.15. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and almost in despair, that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. And so, from desperately looking inward at his own efforts, his own merits, his own attempts at atonement, Bilney now looked away from himself and found Christ, and in Christ, the full and free forgiveness of his sins and the reconciliation to God that he had so longed to know. From this point, he said, the Scripture began to be sweeter and more pleasant to me than honey, and he just delighted in everything that he read in the Bible. For the first time in his life, Thomas Bilney would have been able to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the sheer magnificence and preciousness of that truth is what made him willing to be executed by fire, to be burned alive, rather than deny the gospel. As we come towards the end of the creed um, in this series, we have uh, these three closing statements, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. These statements that bring the gospel to bear on the individual. We've seen the gospel, how it's accomplished. This is now the application of the gospel to the individual. This is what it means for us. And it's focused here on forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is not the whole of the gospel. It's important that we understand that. That's what's mentioned here, but forgiveness is not the whole of the gospel. Forgiveness is not even the ultimate goal of the gospel. Forgiveness is a means to an end. The ultimate goal of the gospel is the knowledge of God. That's what sin has destroyed and, and marred, and that's what needs to be restored. The ultimate goal of the gospel is to know God, to have communion with Him, to enjoy Him forever, with all the blessings that brings. Uh, what spoiled it? Sin. So, sin needs to be dealt with. Forgiveness of sins is the gateway to everything. And that's, that's why it's here in the creed. Uh, one writer calls, it, calls this, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. One writer calls it salvation in shorthand. Without the forgiveness of sins, there can be no salvation, no knowledge of God, no new birth, no place in His family, no holiness, no heaven. So, this is here because the central issue that every man, woman, and child needs to deal with in life is the sin that separates them from God. Like Bilney, we need to discover how our sins can truly be forgiven, and like Bilney, if we do, we will find marvelous comfort and quietness and joy. Now, <clears throat> 
course, it only makes any sense to believe in the forgiveness of sins if we first believe in sin, which is not something that we can take for granted today. Forgiveness will only ever appear glorious and wonderful to us to the extent that sin has first appeared hideous to us. That's how it is. If sin isn't real, then forgiveness isn't real. If sin isn't serious, then forgiveness isn't significant. What we need is a sense of what writers of old used to call the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's a common phrase of old, not so much now. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. What that phrase is is trying to convey is how offensive sin is to God. What an outrageous affront it is. That is something that we don't naturally understand, which is itself a part of our sinfulness. And so, we need to spend a little bit of time on this. Let me suggest um, three reasons why sin is such an appalling thing. Um, Generate, if you're following, you need to pay attention. This is one of your questions. Three reasons why sin is such an appalling thing. The first is that it defies the authority of God. Sin defies the authority of God. The Bible pictures that for us in different ways. There are different words or images that are used for sin. The most common one is that sin is, uh, is a missing of the mark. There's a target, and we miss it. There's a life we're meant to live, and we fall short of what God asks of us. In other places, here's a second one. Uh, the Bible pictures sin or iniquity as the twisting or perverting of moral truth. We get everything out of order. We love what we should hate, and we hate what we should love. We, we value what is worthless, and we despise what is precious. That's iniquity, the twisting of moral truth within us. The third one, in some places, the Bible pictures sin as rebellion or treason against a gracious king. Outrageously, shockingly, we betray the one to whom we owe our life and loyalty. We try to depose him from his rightful throne. We, we mount a coup in our own hearts. You, are, you will not be king here. I will be king here. I will put you off the throne. I will reign. And then fourthly, in some places, the Bible pictures sin as transgression, as the crossing of a boundary and a straying from the right path. It's that moment, I'm sure many of you know this, that moment when you warn your kid not to do something, and they look you in the eye, and with deliberateness and defiance, they go ahead and do it. Transgression. This is what we do to God. Now, here's the thing. If you defy someone's authority, the seriousness of that depends on what authority you're defying, doesn't it? If you return a library book a day late, then, with apologies to librarians, it's a relatively minor authority that you've defied, okay? You're not, you're not in too much trouble, are you? You're not, they're not going to lock you up. If you're driving along and the blue flashing lights come on behind you and you don't stop, you decide, no, I'm going to put my foot down here, then you're in quite a bit more trouble. If you punch the queen you're in a whole other world of trouble altogether. Now, how can we possibly begin to comprehend how serious a thing it is to defy the authority of the living God? You owe every breath and every heartbeat to Him, 
He reigns over every square inch of the universe. He is your king. There is no limit to his authority over you. He can tell you to do whatever he wants to tell you to do. To disobey him is an outrage. It defies the authority of God. But, but here's, here's a second thing. There is more to this than that. If all that we see in God is, is a naked power imposing his will upon us, then, then we've not got him, have we? And so there's a second thing here. The second reason sin is such a grave thing is that it denies the glory of God. We, we need to understand not just how sovereign and authoritative God is, but how utterly glorious and perfect He is. You need to glimpse something of His holiness, His beauty, His love, His power, His wisdom, His majesty, how absolutely worthy and deserving He is, not only of our obedience, but of the adoration of our hearts. Remember what Jesus said is the, the proper response to God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In and through everything that you do, love God above everything else. Adore Him in reverent wonder. Never stop. Never pause. He wants our hearts. Why would we not want to give our hearts to such a God? He's glorious. He's utterly desirable. But we don't because we are not inclined to love and obey Him in our sinful nature. And that is an outrageous thing. Deep within us, there is a twistedness. It's been there ever since the Garden of Eden. A twistedness that turns us in on ourselves, turns us away from God, and it impacts all that we are and do. Our world says, celebrate who you are. Celebrate who you are. The Bible, you know, the message of, of God's Word could not be more revolutionary. It says, repent of who you are. And allow God to make you into who He wants you to be. The third reason why sin is so serious is that it destroys the joy of men and women. Why does God speak so much of sin in the Bible? Why does God so hate sin? Well, for the same reason that you and I hate cancer and drink driving and poverty and famine and injustice. Does that make you hateful? No, quite the opposite. We hate these things because of what they do to people, because they destroy people. We need to learn to see sin in the same way, to understand that we're not talking about a little bit of naughty fun. We're talking about spiritual cancer that wants to eat you alive. That's what sin is. That's how serious it is. Now, Look here. Look here at 1 Timothy 1. Um, here's Paul appointed, he says, verse, appointed to the service of Christ. Uh, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you had met Paul at the point in his life that he's talking about here, you would have thought he was the holiest person you had ever met in your life. He was a Pharisee. 
He had studied under the best rabbis from a young age. He was profoundly concerned to honor God, to obey God's law in its minutest details. On the face of it, that was what motivated him in in everything that he did. But all the time he's come to see, under the face of it, under the surface, at the deepest level, he was an enemy of God. He had um, what he would later describe as um, zeal, but not according to knowledge. Great energy, great effort, great… But, but, but all wrong. He was a blasphemer. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and walked the earth, and Paul rejected him, told lies about him, spoke evil of him. He hated the name of Jesus, hated him. He was a persecutor. He hunted down Christians with raging fury. They couldn't find asylum overseas. You can read about it in Acts when he, uh, when he appears before Agrippa. He, he tells this story. I, I, would, I would go, I would travel internationally, he says, to find Christians, hunt them down, arrest them, bring them back, and when they were brought for trial, I always voted for their execution. It was a persecutor, he says. And and, and hideous as all of those memories must have been to him now, I think what he probably really has in his mind here is one day on a road on the way to Damascus, when the blinding light appeared and he falls to the ground and the voice comes, why are you persecuting me, Saul? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He's a blasphemer. He's a persecutor. He's an insolent opponent. Um, this is the, the Greek word from which we get the word hubris. Uh, the Greek word is hubris. Um, that's the word. It's just a Greek word that we've adopted. Uh, the tone goes further than insolence. It suggests a kind of wanton violence. It suggests that, that there was this uh, a deep-seated hostility in Paul, a kind of barely concealed rage just ready to, to break out against any who named the name of Jesus. And so he says, I was the foremost of sinners, or in the authorized version, the chief of sinners. And the point of Paul saying that is not to kind of, he's not wallowing in false humility or in guilt or in self-loathing. The point of saying it is to recognize the magnitude and the magnificence of grace and the wonder of a forgiveness that can save someone like me. That's what he's saying. And the key thing, here's the key thing, the key thing is not to see Paul in these verses with all of his sins, or to see Thomas Bilney with all of his sins and guilt. The key thing is to see yourself. Apart from Christ, your own situation apart from Him. So, here's a question. Can you truly say It's an interesting question. I wonder what you'll think when I say this. Can you truly say that you know anyone in the world who has sinned more than you have? I'd be willing to put down money if I was a betting man that most of us in this room instinctively, immediately said, of course, of course. Of course there are other people who have sinned more than I have. Don't be ridiculous. But here's the thing. Where did Jesus say sin resides? Out of the heart of man, he said, come sins. 
including evil thoughts and envy and all sorts of things, out of the heart of man. Now, there is only one heart in this world that you even begin to know. Even that one deceives you often. But there is only one heart in this world that you can claim even to begin to know, and it's your own. And so, consider again, can you truly say that you know that anyone else in the world has sinned more than you have? Do you see how, in reality, every last one of us needs to confess ourselves to be the foremost and the chief of all sinners? Some alien being lands on earth, walks up to me, and says, we have come to visit sinners. Take me to your leader. I would have to say, you've found him. I'm the chief of them all. I I can't point you to anyone whose heart I know to be more wicked than mine. I can't. This is the only heart I know. And its condition appalls me, and it shames me. And so every last one of us, even even those of us who've walked with Christ for decades, we we need to see that it's all, from start to finish, what, what Bunyan called grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Now, why have I spent so much time on sin in a sermon on forgiveness? Uh, Well, because we need to get the exceeding sinfulness of sin if we're ever going to understand the exceeding glory of grace. The gospel makes no sense at all unless sin is both real and serious, unless our sinfulness is the biggest problem we face in life. Go to a hotel, wander around the hotel, pointing out to everybody the wonderful fire escapes. Wax lyrical about them. Look at these fires. Isn't it wonderful that there are fire escapes? Isn't it fantastic? Look, look at how they work. Look, there's a bar, and you just press the bar. It's locked, and yet you just press the bar, and out, out you go, and you can get out. Isn't it fantastic? You can get out of this hotel. It's amazing. And people will look at you like you're insane. Unless they know that the hotel's on fire. We're so, in the church today, we're so nervous, we're so anxious. Oh, you hate to be negative, you know? People hate it, don't they? The world out there hates it. It hates to hear of sin. We want to be positive. Of course we want to be positive. Who doesn't want to be positive? But the gospel only makes any sense if we are sinners in trouble. You only need the fire escape if there's a fire. And so, in the midst of a culture that denies the very existence of sin, we must acknowledge the reality of it. And in the midst of a culture that denies the seriousness of sin, we must recognize the exceeding sinfulness of it. And then the second thing we need to understand if we're to appreciate the glory of forgiveness is the extreme costliness of atonement. The extreme costliness of atonement. Here in 1 Timothy, it's there in this verse that changed Thomas Bilney's life, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, um, there's a huge amount packed into those verses. We've already unpacked some of it in, in, in this series so far. Uh, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate 
was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. All of that is, is kind of packed into these few, these few words here in this great verse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to atone for our sins. Atonement. How you think of that word? Uh, somehow, I think sometimes it can come across as a, almost a kind of legal, impersonal word. It's not. It's, it's a deeply relational word. It's a relationship word. It actually does. People, you, sometimes people say, well, you can think of it. If you think of it like this, think of it as being like at one moment. You know what I say? If, if you imagine it's a little bit like at one moment. You don't just need to imagine it. That's what the word is. That's, that's where the word comes from. At one moment. Atonement is, is, is what needs to happen to make us at one with God again. We are not at one with Him because of our sin. Atonement brings us back to God. The miracle of grace is that the basic storyline of the Bible is not a search and destroy mission. God, God would have been perfectly justified to do that, just judge sinners for their sin. But instead, He made a promise and, and he promised a Savior. He promised in Genesis 3.15, right at the beginning of the Bible storyline. And because he promised, he made it a matter of his faithfulness and justice that he should keep that promise, which is why First um, John 1 says what it does. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Why? Is that because God has to forgive sin? No, he doesn't have to forgive sin just because it's nice to do. He has to forgive it because he promised to do it. That's the reason. It's His grace and the promise and, and the, the reliability of His Word. That's why it's a matter of faithfulness and justice that God should forgive those who come to Him in repentance and faith. And so, having given His Word, He then, the, the whole of the rest of the, the, the Bible storyline is not then a search and destroy mission, it's a search and rescue mission. Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. And, and, and what I want us to note at this point is just the sheer cost then of our atonement. We need to come back to this. We'll, we'll come to it, in a sense, at the end of the service. We'll come to it. When we come to the table, we're reminded, aren't we? The sheer cost. Peter, Peter was there when the cost was paid. He, he speaks about it in his uh, first, first letter, First Peter 1. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. I love that phrase, don't you? Our world our world lusts for silver and gold. What more could you want? This is what we long for. And, 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 and Peter says, perishable things, worthless things like silver and gold. Not with that where we redeemed, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I, we, we become accustomed to this, don't we? This, this wondrous thing, this astonishing thing. God the Son exists with the Father from eternity past in perfect joy, perfect holiness, perfect happiness, perfect relationship, unimaginable glory. And then, and then He takes to Himself the same stuff that we are made of. This, this same... God the Son gets a cold. 
and, and he gets splinters in his finger when he's, when he's working wood and, and, and just has to deal with all this stuff of life. And, and, and he gets tired. And, and, and all the way through his life, he remains what he has always been. He is, he is perfect and pure in holiness. Everything in him longs for the glory of God the Father. This is what drives him. God must be glorified, and yet he lives his life surrounded by people who care not for the glory of God, who are rebels against his authority and sinners. Jesus is surrounded by this all the way through his life, and, and he endures unjust taunts about his parentage, and, and then he enters into his ministry, and his, his, his closest followers are so slow to learn. People say he is possessed by Satan, uh, his own family want to commit him. People accuse him. People, just consider this. People accuse God the Son of blasphemy. And, and, and people try to kill him. And then he is betrayed. And he is arrested and he is beaten and he is mocked, and he is spat upon, and he is tortured, he is whipped, and he has thorns put in his brow, and he is subjected to a mock farce of a trial, and he has nails driven through his wrists and his ankles. And he's killed. And he is God the Son. He is God the Son. I recently, I hadn't read this before, I recently came across John Owen's breathtaking description of what happened at Gethsemane and at Calvary. Extraordinary words. To see him who is the wisdom of God and the power of God, always beloved of the Father, to see Him, I say, fear and tremble and bow and sweat and pray and die. To see Him lifted up upon the cross, the earth trembling under Him as if unable to bear His weight, and the heavens darkened over Him as if shut against His cry, and Himself hanging between them both, as if refused by both. And all this because our sins did meet upon Him. An extraordinary image, isn't it? Jesus, rejected by earth, rejected by heaven, hanging there, utterly alone, utterly alone, forsaken. The cost. cost of it. Sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God, and so only an infinitely precious atonement can restore us to Him. And it's with all of that in place, it's only with all of that in place that we can see and come to know the exhilarating joy of forgiveness. This was what Bilney found 
This one sentence, he said, verse 15, this one sentence did so exhilarate my heart that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. This is the response of the sinner saved by, by, by this astonishing grace of God. I am the chief of sinners. And yet, the angel says, you shall call this name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Chief of sinners. And yet, Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Chief of sinners. Peter says, Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Chief of sinners. Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Isn't that astonishing? Chief of sinners, but no condemnation. Nothing. Gone. All of that sin, all the great mountain of it, all the appalling guilt of it, all the horror and outrage of it, gone, gone. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you're of a, if you're of a logical bent, you can present it as what they call a logical syllogism. Christ came for sinners. I am a sinner. Therefore, Christ came for me. Christ came for me. It's a great thing to be a sinner, isn't it? Great thing to be able to say that you're a sinner because Christ came for sinners. He is the friend of sinners. He didn't come for the righteous, he says. Paul, Paul just, just revels in this. Just the, the tone of these verses, I thank him. I received mercy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Again, I received mercy. The Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin used to render that, I was bemercied. It's a great expression. I was bemercied. You know what it is to be bemercied by God. Why should such a thing happen? Well, well, says Paul, the only thing I can think is that God wanted me to be an example, not to be the kind of good and godly example that I thought I was, but to be an example of how even the foulest of sinners can be washed clean by the blood of Christ. Verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the chief of sinners that is, Jesus Christ might display the, His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. We're, we're meant to conclude, well, if Paul, of all people, could be, could be shown mercy, then there is hope. There is hope. Maybe you've already taken hold of Christ by faith, and this is hope for someone you love. Maybe there's someone you know. And they seem so, you, you, you long for them to know Christ. And they seem so far from Him, and their hearts seem so hard, and you cannot imagine. How could this ever be? Well, no one had a rock of a heart like Saul of Tarsus. But the hearts of men are in the hands of God. And grace can dissolve the harvest, hardest of them. And so keep praying. Keep praying and keep telling others of what Christ has done for you. Uh, Thomas Bilney once heard a young preacher whose speciality was in refuting Reformation teaching. Um, he went to, went to hear this man, and he was kind of laying into the Reformers. He was a Roman Catholic priest laying into the Reformers. And uh, Bilney listened to him, and he thought, this man has zeal but without knowledge. 
but I think he has a good heart. How can I, how can I speak to him? And so he contacted him. And sometimes you can be a little bit sneaky for the gospel. He contacted him and said, I would like you to hear my confession. And so this priest thought, ah, Thomas Bilney, this Catholic priest who's been, you know, mucking about with these Reformation things, he's going to come and confess the error of his ways. So he said, yeah, come, come, and I'll hear your confession gladly. And Bilney came along and sat down, and he took his Erasmus's Greek New Testament with him, and he just poured out his story, his guilt, the weight of it. First Timothy 1.15, he opened it, showed him. Hugh Latimer was the priest's name. I'm guessing more of us have heard of Hugh Latimer than have heard of Thomas Bilney. Hugh Latimer was his name, and that day, well, that day Hugh Latimer said, I learned more from Thomas Bilney than I had in 20 years of study. God opened his eyes. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's all about Christ. It's not about your rituals. It's not about your confession. It's not about your penance. It's not about your deeds. It's all about Christ and Christ only. And this opponent of Protestant truth went on to become another Protestant martyr. Uh, so don't lose hope that one day God might use you to do a bilney on someone. You never know. Then again, maybe for someone here, I don't know, this isn't about anyone else at all. This is about you. Maybe one of you younger ones, I don't know. My heart's the only one I know. I don't know yours. But maybe for someone here, this is about you. This is about the burden of sin on your heart. And you know what Bilney was talking about when he talked about his, his soul being sick and his heart being weighed down, and this guilt within him that he needed to be free of. And so Paul says to you, look what Christ did for me. He did this as an example for you to encourage you to come to him. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Reject it. Learn to hate it. Embrace Christ. Receive all that He did for you at this terrible cost. And experience the freedom, the exhilarating joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven, washed whiter than snow, removed as far as the east is from the west, cast into the depths of the sea, gone forever. There's a book that... Um, you'll have heard of, you, although you may not know the full title, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come, Delivered Under the Similitude of a Dream. They did good book titles in 1678, didn't they? That is uh, it's one of the best-selling books of all time. Uh, it might be the second best-selling book of all time, um, but certainly one of the best-selling books. At no point in the almost 350 years since it was first published, has it ever been allowed to fall out of print? Continually in print for 350 years. Very few books uh, that can be said of. There are various reasons for that, but I suspect one of them is one particular passage, one particular image in that book. Uh, you, you may well know it. The main character, Christian, uh, has been laboring along his way with this dreadful burden on his back, the weight of his sin. Uh, and I've included the extract on the, the service sheet so you can take it home. Now, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was forced to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation, 
Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. I saw it no more. That sense of of a burden lifted from the back just resonates so strongly with Christian experience. That promise of sin gone, never to be seen again, resonates so strongly with the deepest needs of our souls. It's very simple in the end. If your sin hasn't been dealt with, it will gnaw at your soul until it is, and it will destroy you forever if it's not. Bring it into the open before God. Repent of it. Your individual sins and your sinfulness, the twistedness of your heart. You you inherited that, but you're still responsible for it, and you're still guilty because of it. Repent of it.